two things, two things I want to re- remind you of, let you know about. Uh, Darian put these incredible flyers together. This is for September the 11th. How many realize this September the 11th is the 15th anniversary of 9-11-01, 15 years already? And we have the fire chief of Coronado and the police chief who are going to be here. We're going to honor them. Anybody else? I know, Monica, I'm begging you to wear your uniform. Uh, any law enforcement, any first responders, any EMT, please wear your uniforms. We want to honor you on September the 11th, which is a Sunday this year. So take these and invite any police, fire people, uh, or um, EMT people that you know of and get them to come. They're on the back table, and uh, feel free to take those and do that. Now, the other thing, ladies, pay close attention. This is Paula Dunn. She's an incredible singer, uh, writes a lot of her own material. Um, she's also, she has an incredible testimony. And we have a ladies' event here on September the 17th. They say there's no free lunches, but we're actually going to have a free lunch. All right? It's, and she's got, we got the menu all figured out, salads and croissants and all kinds of things that ladies like, okay? Going to have lady food at this, uh, at this uh, event. Uh, guys, no barbecue. So anyhow, uh, this will be on September this, the, the uh, what I say, 17th. At 12 noon until 2.30, and she's going to be here. You'll have lunch together. And then, guys, I'm going to need some of you to help me set up for church after the event, okay, because we'll have tables out here and everything, and we need you to RSVP. Now, here's the thing. We have, I think I got a 1,000 of these, but I'm not sure. I got a bunch of them, and I put them in groups, put them rubber band together in groups of five, so I want every lady here to be here, and I'd like you to invite five ladies, and we'd like to just fill this place up and overflow it, actually, for this event. You will be glad you did. This testimony of this young lady is incredible. So those two things coming up uh, in the month of September, and I hope that you will get these and take them with you. These flyers also on the back. In Psalm 121, I'm going to need some help uh, at the very end of the sermon, so I'd like for a couple of people to volunteer to look up a couple of passages, and you'll have about 25 minutes to look them up. (laughs) <laughs> so even if you have to cheat and look at the index in the front and figure out where it is, uh, uh, easy, these are easy ones. Who would look up 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Who would look up 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Fitz, would you do that? Verses 3 through 7. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. I need someone else to look up 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. Who would do that? All right, Ryan, 1 Peter 4. Verses 12 and 13, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. We're talking about Sizzling Summer Psalm Series, number six today, Psalm 121. If you weren't here, Psalm 1 was an understanding, uh, was a safeguard for the believer from harmful philosophies and practices keeping us in the right paths. Psalm 23, one of the most beloved of all the Psalms, the great shepherd Psalm, Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, there were 17 commands, 25 promises, seven prophecies, and a lot of good old-fashioned good common sense, which is not so common these days, it seems like. Uh, Psalm 46 extolled the adequacy of God when we face threats, whether those threats be from nature or nations or people, whatever. And then Psalm 51 last week, I said that's the psalm I really didn't want to preach, but I'm glad I could preach it, a psalm of repentance. When we fall into sin, we, there is a way out. Uh, we don't have to. I came over the bridge Saturday morning, and I, I think there was someone who was attempting to take their own life on the bridge, and they, if that's what happened, they got the person down, and I'm very thankful for that. You don't have to lose hope, folks. You don't have to 
ever to lose hope. As long as God is alive and well, there's hope. And so don't ever get to that point. There's always a time of repentance, a time of turning around, time of getting things back on track, um, no matter what we've gone through. And I know some of you have been through some horrendous things. So today on Psalm 121 follows, obviously, Psalm 120, which was a song of distress, a song of complaint. Several of the Psalms are complaints to God. And that's why I think it's okay. I mean, God had as his inspired, infallible words, songs of complaint and, and songs of, you know, Lord, why is this happening to me? This is, this is not fair. This is not right. And sometimes we feel like that. And we get fairness confused with justice and, and we get the sovereignty of God all confused with our own decisions and the way we make decisions. Israel repeatedly got in trouble for complaining about God and his provision, but Psalm 120 is a plea to God and a complaint about those who were being abusive against the writer of the song. And there's a big difference there. We move from anguish in Psalm 120 to hope in Psalm 121. The only title given this psalm in study Bibles is a song of degrees. What? A song of degree? What? We've got a lot of degrees here today. Is that what it's talking about? Temperature? Not at all. A song of degrees or a sense is a title given to 15 different psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. They're called gradual psalms by some, uh, songs of steps, or they're even called pilgrim psalms. Many scholars believe they were called that because they were sung by worshipers <coughs> as they ascended the road to Jerusalem to attend the three pilgrim festivals as described in Deuteronomy 16. Or maybe they were the psalms sung by the priests as they went up the 15 steps to the minister at the temple in Jerusalem, but they were all well-suited for being sung. They were poetic. Uh, they were brief. They were repetitive. Uh, they were uh, epigrammic in style, and most of them are cheerful, and all of them are very hopeful. So if there were another title for Psalm 121, if we were going to all come up with a title for Psalm 121 today, it might be a song to the keeper of Israel, a song to the one who keeps Israel. The steps as it develops, and you'll see it in a minute, goes from my help. It starts out talking about my help being God. And then my help will not sleep. And then my help is Jehovah God who never sleeps. And then my help is Jehovah God who never sleeps or slumbers and keeps me in all situations and circumstances forever. Even if you feel like you're in a set of circumstances uh, that God has lost control of upon the basis of the authority of the Word of God and faith in the Word of God, I can tell you with a surety you are not beyond His scope of influence and purpose and plan and, 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 and whatever we go through, uh, some horrendous things. God is still God and He is still that umbrella even in the midst of the storm. Psalm 121 lists 10 blessings from God. Now, 10 points, you're thinking, holy cow, we're going to be here till about 1.30. But I'm not. I'm going to go through them fast. So in verses 1 and 2, I will lift mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who has made heaven and earth. There are two ways to interpret these two verses. So the first point is help in time of trouble. Help in time of trouble. There are two ways to interpret these two verses. The mountains... Retreats, the mountain retreats, or the high places are places that provide protection from things that happen to people and uh, that, that, that things that happen when people are in the low places, the valleys of life, so to speak. Uh, it, the mountains may be a metaphor 
for the new covenant or for the commandments or for the purposes of God or for his attributes or the promises or faithfulness or maybe an, uh, a metaphor for God himself. I look under the mountains from whence cometh my help. Help comes from above. We lift our eyes for the help that we need. He is a very present help in trouble. Watching a, some kind of a documentary last night and a lady who was t- kidnapped by an armed uh, assailant um, was anticipating a terrible um, atrocity that was about to be performed. And one of the things she said, one of the things she said is she contemplated uh, how to get away and, 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 and tried to remain calm and tried to figure out what would be a way of escape. One of the things she did in her determining of what to do was to pray, to look up. And, she, and, and, and in the dramatization of it, I don't know if she did it in real life, but in the dramatization, the character looked up and briefly closed her eyes as she prayed. So we lift up our eyes from whence cometh our help. So that's one of the possible uh, interpretations. The other interpretation, that this is unfortunate wording in the English, and that the hills don't help us at all. But it's really God. And if you look at the NLT, for example, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? And it's a rhetorical question. I look to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help doesn't come from creation. My help comes from the creator, the one who made the mountains. The one, as I look up, behold, the majestic mountains, and they speak of of strength maybe and and presence and all of that. I'm, I'm going way beyond the mountains for my help. I'm going to the very one who created them. So whatever the original intent, it is good to lift our eyes, taking them off of the present world in order to see him who is our helper and our keeper. John Bowder wrote these words, to heaven I lift mine eye, to heaven Jehovah's throne, for there my Savior sits on high, and thence shall strength and aid supply to all he calls his own. He is the keeper in the time of trouble. If you're going through troubles right now, whether you realize it or not, he is your keeper. And can you imagine going through the troubles you're going through without the assurance that God was there? Second point is the creation of heaven and earth. I'm so thankful for the creation of God. I'm so thankful for the idea of God being the creator. As a teenager studying in state schools, colleges, universities, I was taught that evolution was a scientific fact. And yet the reality is every single secular professor and teacher who taught me that knew they were lying. They knew they were. Because nothing is established as a scientific fact, if you're going to talk science, until it passes the test according to the scientific method. You remember that? Studying the scientific method? Basically, it's something like this. Ask a question, do background research, construct a hypothesis of what you think is going to happen, test your hypothesis by doing experiments in a controlled lab situation, analyze your data, draw conclusions, communicate your results. Every single scientific fact has to pass that rigid standard. And by this definition, neither creation nor evolution are facts or scientific facts by this definition. They are both theories, and they are both based on faith. So you can either believe in the idea of an almighty creator God who has always been and always will be, because that's where the Christian starts. Almighty God, always been, always will be, never changes. God is the originator, author, designer, builder, engineer 
of everything on the earth. Or you can believe that a swirling mass of gases, we don't know where they came from, somehow exploded. We don't know when, where, how. And threw all the planets and solar systems and suns into place. All the stars up there are actually suns. Many of them with their own solar systems. They, they all, out of this massive explosion came order and orbits, which doesn't make any sense scientifically. Nick's not here. If, if Nick were here, I'd ask Nick, so if you set off a bomb, does that like produce a really pretty house? Does that build a car if you set it off in a metal factory? You know, what, what explosions destroy, they don't, they don't build, they don't design. So you can either believe, and you believe this by faith, that everything came to being. You may as well believe, you know, you take a, a Gary, you take a box of parts, and I mean, a, a bunch of parts and put them in a box and shake them and out pops an Invicta watch. You may as well believe that as to believe evolution. So you believe what you believe by faith. And he is the God, the creator God, who I believe put us on this earth for reasons that he knows. And we're here to find out what that reason is and to fulfill it the best of our ability. He's the one, the creator God, who keeps us. He, he, number three, he keeps us in time of trouble. He will not suffer your foot to be moved. He that keeps you, watches over you, will not slumber. Though the paths of life can be dangerous, he will not allow our feet to slip and fall. And in the Bible lands, and and even now, I mean, I have a friend who was walking down one of the streets of, I think it was San Diego, and the sidewalk, you know how they'll lift up every once in a while? And he hit his toe and fell forward right on his face on the concrete and caused all kinds of damage, all kinds of problems. And yet we have sidewalks and we have streets. I mean, you know, Pat out here uh, last January fell and broke her kneecap because of uh, the tree roots and so on. So, I mean, in in Bible times, slipping off the path could mean death. If you're one of, by the way, I love thrilling things. I like, you know, I, you know, love riding motorcycles, like doing what my wife calls stupid things. I I like doing stupid things. But if you're one of those people, Ryan, who gets out there on the edge of a cliff and sits there and dangles their feet over this Grand Canyon or something, you're nuts. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean. Oh, she did it. Oh, okay. Well, that's different then. All right. All right. The roads and paths of ancient Holy Land were, were much more treacherous than ours are today. A slip could mean death, but our feet because of the Lord, are secure, and and our feet are sure, and and our head and our heart will be safe if our feet are safe. And the original wording of this was more of a prayer, really, this verse, and and it went something like this, may he not suffer or allow your foot to be moved. Again, standing at the, where the waves come in, and, and, and you know how it erodes the sand out from under your feet. It's, it's an unsettling, kind of unsure footing, but on a solid rock. We're safe, we're secure, we're planted, God, and we should pray with faith for his perpetual preservation even when our foot could slip and it would mean certain injury. Number four, he keeps us day and night, or he watches over us day and night. God never sleeps. God never goes on vacation. God never quits. God never gets off watch. He never gets laid off. God doesn't have any sick days accumulated. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't die. 
God is just God, amen? He is eternal. He always is, always will be. We may do those things, but not he. And and when we sleep, he still watches over us. When we're totally unconscious, unaware of what's going on around us, he is absolutely aware. He watches over us. He is our keeper in the daytime and the nighttime. Number five, he watches against our enemies. Or in other words, he keeps us from our enemies. Behold, he that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He's the one who watches over us. Uh, Why do, and and he said, well, that's repetitious. He just said that. Well, why do teachers repeat things for us over and over and over and over? Why do some of the worship songs repeat things over and over and over? To plant in our hearts and in our minds what we need to know. Repetitions become important for teaching. To to drill it in to our, our, our heads and our hearts. So God repeats the fact again that he never tires or sleeps. He says, behold, that got their attention. I want you to know I'm watching over you when you're even unaware. And he keeps us as a rich man would keep his treasure, as a captain keeps his garrison, as the royal guard keeps their monarch, so he keeps us. And verse 3 promises the individual, uh, he'll keep us from the individual and verse 4 of the nation. He will not faint nor fail nor cause thy feet to stray. For him no weary hours assail, nor even darkness spreads her veil or his eternal day. Number six, he protects us from the sun. He keeps us from the sun. Hey, another use for that umbrella is to keep the sun off too. How many of you in this last few weeks when it's been just really hot for us, how many of you have been out working in the sun? Let me see your hands. You've been out in the sun? And, and isn't it amazing how you can just go into the shade of a tree or, or the shade of a, of a building, and all of a sudden it seems like the temperature drops about five or six, seven, eight degrees. It's because it does. So, so it's a shelter from the, I see people around walking all, all the time with umbrellas when it's really hot like it has been lately. And so he is your keeper. The Lord is your shade upon your right hand. The sun shall not smite you by day nor the moon by night. Here, Jehovah is identified as the keeper. He's not just anybody. He is Jehovah God, and he is our God, and he is our keeper. Uh, There is wealth beyond our ability to comprehend in this idea. He's the one who watches over us. He is our shade. Shade protects us from the burning heat, the glaring light. He is our shade. Remember, God was a pillar of what by day for Israel? Cloud by day and fire by night. He was a cloud by day to shelter them. He was a fire by night to warm them and to let them know where he was. So he will be there for us. He protects us from even the great light in the heavens and from the dangers in broad daylight. And he protects us in the darkest night. Point seven is kind of strange. He protects us from the moon. What? What what does he have to keep us from the moon? By the way, have you seen the moon lately, the, the last few nights? It's, it's, it's come up. I, I was going home, I don't even remember now, one night. Uh, I don't know if it was Friday or Saturday. I'm not sure when it was, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But as I was going toward the bridge and, and the moon was, I mean, it's like sitting on top of the bridge. It was like, holy cow. I just wanted to stop and take a picture. Um, but two or three times in the last week, I, I told Pat, I said, look at the moon. And, and my son-in-law does. He texts her and says, look at the moon. So what, what do we need protection from the moon? Well, let me just take, uh, remember who he's writing to, okay? And let's take something that was 
taught in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, 16, and 17. When they were come to the multitude, there came unto Jesus a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. I don't know why, but I think that's one of the funniest verses in the Bible. Lord, please have mercy on, me, on my son, for he's a lunatic. I mean, if you ever wanted to say that, don't say that right now, but he's a lunatic. You know what literally that meant, a luna, a lunar? He, he's moonstruck. That's what it means. And, and he's sore vexed in the King James. For often he falls into the fire and into the water. He casts himself into the fire. He casts himself into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and crooked or perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I allow you? Bring him here to me. He was moonstruck. He was, he was a lunatic in the sense not just crazy nuts like we might say today. He was suffering from something that caused him to fall into fire, fall into water, and there's speculation whether it was demon possession or whether it was some illness like epilepsy or something that caused him to lose control, and we don't really know from the text which one it was. Illness can be brought on by Satan. He can oppress us. Not all illness is brought on by Satan. When someone is sick, it's not because they're demon-possessed or something like that. If someone has epilepsy, it doesn't mean they're controlled by the devil. Certainly not. But Jesus, no matter what, is the great physician. And remember, God is the one who, who can heal all of our diseases according to Psalm 103. And if Satan is behind illness, then Jesus is still the healer and the protector and the keeper. Beneath that light divine, securely shalt thou move. The sun with milder beams shall shine. And Eve's still queen, her lamp incline. Benignant from above, kind from above. Number eight, he preserves and keeps us from evil. Verse seven. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall keep us from evil. He shall keep us from evil times. He shall keep us from the evil one. Living today, you might not think he's going to be able to keep us from the evil times because it seems like more and more. Yesterday, last night in Turkey, a 12, 13, 14-year-old child went into a wedding party strapped with explosives, 50 at least dead, dozens other injured. What kind of evil days do we live in? What kind of evil enemies are we up against? And can the Lord protect us from such as that? The Lord's prayer says, deliver us from evil, really. Deliver us from the evil one. And when we resist Satan, he will flee from us. And when we draw near unto God, he will draw near unto us. Does that mean evil will never knock at your door? No. Does that mean the evil one will never knock at your door? No. In fact, I'm pretty well guaranteed if you're trying to live for God, he will. Or one of his ambassadors will. But during that time, those times, the God, Jehovah, still preserves us and keeps us from evil. Number nine, he preserves or keeps our souls. I believe in eternal security. Preacher, you mean you believe you're once saved, always saved? Yes, I do. You mean if, if, I, if I get saved, go out and shoot somebody and kill them, I can still go to heaven? Uh, you know what? Probably, and I could probably do that, but you know what? I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, what if you get saved and go out and get, get, you know, take drugs and stuff? You know what? God deals with his children the same way we're supposed to deal with our children, by discipline, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And God will deal with his children. But I believe once we get born. How many here were born into this world? Let me see your hands. 
How many of you didn't raise your hand? You were hatched? Okay. All right. So we were all born into this world. Now, can you ever be unborn? I mean, being dead is not the same thing. You were born. That is an established fact of time, place, somewhere. You had a mom. I assume you weren't born as a result of test two. I assume you had a mom. And so you were born. When we get born again, and, and, and you know, Nicodemus had problems with this. How do, you, how do you do that? Do you go back into your mother's womb somehow? And be, no, it's, it's a spiritual birth, but it's just as assured. It's just as sure. And when, there was a point in time when Jim Bays put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, realizing I couldn't do enough good. I couldn't ever get to heaven on my own merit and my own ability, but that Jesus Christ, because he loved me and died for me on the cross, died for every sin I've ever committed. And at that point in time, every sin I ever committed was future, by the way. And so he died for all of my sins. And his blood is efficacious, which means it brings salvation. His blood applied washes away my sins and makes me whole and makes me healthy spiritually and and causes me to be born again when I put my faith and trust in him. And I can never be unborn. I got saved when I was eight years old. So, you know, like every little boy, I'd run around with some of my friends and we'd do some things and things we shouldn't do sometimes. And I'd always get caught. And I thought, what is, I hadn't heard of karma yet. I didn't know, didn't know who she was. Uh, but but I, thought, I thought, you know, what is the deal with this? Every, I go out with three or four of my buddies, and we're doing something we shouldn't do, and I'm the one that gets caught. I'm the one that gets pinned for it. Well, it dawned on me a long time later, my buddies weren't Christians. I was. And God was making sure I understood, you, you can't get away with that. You're my child. You cannot get away with what other people can get away with. Don't you think it's a matter of fairness or unfairness? It's a matter of justice again. Because God wants us to keep our testimony pure and holy before him. And God wants us to live according to his command. If you love me, keep my commandments. So he preserves our soul. The soul is the very essence of who we are. It's not our body. That's separate. And soul and spirit get mixed up a lot of times, get used, in, and, and you got to kind of see the context of what's being taught here. I'm talking about the real you. I'm talking about what's inside of your body. I'm talking about the person, the mind, will, emotions of, of who you are, that part of you that when you got saved was turned from dead to alive supernaturally by the power of God. And he's the one, and that's why I can't lose my salvation because he's the one who keeps me. I couldn't keep myself saved for about an hour and a half. Maybe a minute and a half. So he is my soul saver. He is my soul keeper. And I'm kept from a lot of things. I'm kept from the dominion and power of sin. I'm kept from the infection of error. I'm kept from the crush of despondency. I'm kept from the puffing up of pride. I'm kept from the pulls of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm kept for, uh, for holier and greater things. I'm kept for the love of God. I'm kept for the kingdom and his glory. I'm kept for sanctification. He is working in me. Be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Aren't you glad he's your keeper? Last of all, he preserves or keeps our travels forever. Verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth even forevermore. So when we go to work or school in the morning, he goes with us. When we come home, he comes with us. Jehovah God will keep us. When we go out as a youth to begin life, he goes with us. When we come in, aged to face death, Jehovah God is with us. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints our entrances, our exits for you seals, your insertions, and your extractions are kept by one and the same, Jehovah God. Knowing that should comfort us. 
We go to work or we go to war. We come or go. None are so safe as those who are kept by Jehovah God. John R. Rice, how many know that name? John R. Rice, great preacher, sword of the Lord, uh, was his paper for many, many years. was in our church several times. Back in the 30s, he was fighting the, the liquor traffic back in Texas and preaching on that. And after the meeting one night, someone came up and stuck a gun into his stomach and said, you better quit preaching on that stuff or I'm going to kill you. He said, what are you trying to do, scare me with heaven? Can't scare a Christian with heaven. Where's the safest place to be for a child of God? Right in the middle of God's will. It might be in the middle of Iraq or Afghanistan. Somalia. Safest place for a person, a Christian to be is right in the middle of God's will. I could be at home out of God's will and it'd be an unsafe place. He preserves us. We can travel without fear. We can go to work or war. We're talking about eternity. For he, thy soul and friends, shall keep thy soul from harm and each sad scene of doubt attend and guide thy life and bless thy end with his almighty arm. So Psalm 121, my help is Jehovah God who never sleeps or slumbers and keeps me in all situations and circumstances forever. Is God your keeper? He can be and he wants to be. Fitz, would you read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, as loudly as you can? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort in which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, We share the sufferings of Christ and his followers, and we will share in the glory that is ours one day. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, Ryan. I wanted to close with those because, as I said, with the kids with the umbrella at the very beginning, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And lest you think, because God is our keeper, that no ill would ever befall us, lest you think no trials would ever come, lest you think a Christian would walk through this life without any problems, may I remind you that the most perfect person and the only perfect person who ever lived was nailed to a cross. And before that was crowned with thorns, and before that was whipped mercilessly with a cat of nine tails, was taunted and ridiculed and rejected, beaten, beard plucked out. For the very people that he came to save rejected him. So we suffer 
Some of you suffer in ways I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Maybe physical suffering, maybe emotional suffering, maybe, maybe psychological suffering, but you're suffering. And I didn't want you to think, I'm just saying, you know what? God will keep you. God will take care of you. Isn't God good? Everything's fine. But I do take you back to this thought. What would it be like to go through the suffering through which you're traveling without him as your companion? without the promises of God that one day all suffering will end and everything will be all right. George MacDonald said these words, the Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. We, in suffering, are becoming more Christ-like, whether we understand that fully or not. He breaks us so he can pick us up, so he can love on us and make sure that one day everything will be okay.